Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Dad, it's Luke. Hey, Luke. Question. Okay. How many times, if you had to give it your best guess, how many times do you think that you've seen the movie Quigley Down Under? Well, anytime I see it that it's on, I'll flip over there, whether it just came on or whether it's got 10 minutes left in it. <laughs> just like I did this morning with Lonesome Dove. <laughs> I sat here for three hours with that. I'd yeah. say at least 20. Oh, I think it has to be more than that. Surely more than that. I feel like I've seen you watch it more than 20 times. When did it come out? 30 years ago this week. Well, at least 30 then. Maybe 60. (laughs) Probably bits and pieces twice a year. What is it that you love about that movie? Well, I think Tom Selleck is incredible as a Western cowboy actor. I mean, I think that's the genre he should always be in. I mean, he's good in other stuff too, but... And I just, I don't know, I just like the concept of the movie. I mean, he's just an incredible marksman. He's a gentleman. He's a, you know, he does it all, but he's honest, good guy. Helps the down and out. Helps the natives there. He doesn't even know them. He's never been to Australia, but he knows it was wrong for what he was brought there for. So, yeah, just a great movie. Well, cool. And a great name for an Australian shepherd dog, quickly. <laughs> Well, I just thought you'd want to know that that released 30 years ago this week. That's cool. That's awesome. Yep. It is It is great. All right. Well, that's all I got. I'm going to start the episode now. All right. See you, bud. Bye. Right. Bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 2, Episode 41, Whitewashed Rap and Colorful Zombies. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, October 20th, 1990. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another episode of 30 Pop. We are finally, finally, finally nearing the end of MC Hammer's reign in the number one spot of the Billboard 200 chart with his album, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. He held that spot yet again this week, but would only have two more weeks ahead of him before dropping to number two, where he'd remain yet again for many more weeks. It'll be nice to have something new to say for one week. The next album to claim that spot will hold it for a nearly as impressive 16 weeks. Then the next artist will hold it for 12. After that, we'll get to enjoy a little variety from week to week, which will be nice in 30 weeks. It's so interesting to look back and see albums or songs dominate the charts in that way in the context of today's digital audio landscape. MP3s led to the demise of the CD, which led to the demise of whole album consumption as people no longer needed to buy more than the one song that was stuck in their head at any given moment. Access to that single song led to the demise of the true radio single, and honestly to the relative end of terrestrial radio and the need for record labels' big budgets. Which is great, because without the whole album sales, or sales at all in the world of streaming music and YouTube, 
those record labels no longer have those big budgets. More fortunate still, with social media and improvements in recording technology, it doesn't require a big budget to produce really great music. And it requires even less to produce really mediocre music, which seems to be the general standard nowadays. And why shouldn't it be when those who consume the music do so without paying for it and move on quickly? But that's a rant about today. We're talking about a time rich with nostalgia now when the music industry, crooked as it was, really worked. I mean, sort of. It worked for some, as such systems do. Because discoverability was nearly impossible otherwise, radio stations with their DJs and program directors were still vital to both listeners and artists. And while you could technically buy cassette singles, whole albums were still very much the norm. So artists were responsible for delivering long-form projects with enough well-written, well-produced content that they could perform for 90 minutes a night on the road and sell enough albums to recoup the record labels that funded them, minus the percentages owed to their agent who booked the tours, their manager who found the record contract, their attorneys who negotiated the contract, their roadies, bus drivers, gear techs, opening bands, etc. Suffice to say, it was a different time. And albums like Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em could still dominate for 21 out of 22 straight weeks. Crazy. Anyway, the number one single in the country this week in 1990 was the very beautiful, very sad I Don't Have the Heart by two-time Grammy Award-winning music legend James Ingram. I don't have the heart I'm a little ashamed to say I didn't recognize James Ingram by name, but I'm very, very familiar with his work. While this was his only number one song as a solo act, he had plenty of success before this released. He co-wrote the Michael Jackson song, PYT, Pretty Young Thing, along with Quincy Jones. He was a featured vocalist on 1985's We Are the World, sandwiched right between Kenny Rogers and Tina Turner. And in 1987, he won a Grammy for his duet with Linda Ronstadt, the theme song for the animated feature, An American Tale, Somewhere Out There, which causes an emotional reaction in me even still today. Ingram did a lot more than that as well over the course of his career, which ended tragically early when he died of brain cancer in early 2019, just two weeks before his 67th birthday. So sad. He was such a talent and the music he brought into the world remains such a gift. At the top of the Hot Country chart 30 years ago this week was, once again, Garth Brooks with Friends in Low Places. And singer Pebbles was still number one on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart with her song, Giving You the Benefit. On the Hot Rap chart this week in 1990, we saw the beginning, as I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, of one of, if not the most meteoric rise to international fame in the history of the world. That of a young man named Robbie Van Winkle, a.k.a. Vanilla Ice. The song, which had actually been written in 1983 by 16-year-old Van Winkle, Ice Ice Baby, off his debut album, To the Extreme, which had released about six weeks earlier. It'd be hard to overstate the impact this song had on music and pop culture, although it actually only held the number one spot on this chart for one week. It was beyond massive, although it wasn't really intended to be. Ironically, Ice Ice Baby was actually released as the B-side to Ice's far inferior cover of Wild Cherry's Play That Funky Music. 
But when a radio DJ named David Morales flipped the record and broadcast this song instead of the single, it caught the music world on fire. I have to assume, in fact, that the reason it only held the top spot for a single week is because fans immediately went out and bought the album. They weren't requesting it on the radio because A, it was already in heavy rotation, and B, they already owned it. We'll have lots and lots of time to talk about this song, this album, and this artist over the course of the next year as we're only entering into his wild but brief story. If you just can't wait, The Ringer actually released a killer article about it a few weeks ago, and I've linked that in the show notes for your reading pleasure. In sports news this week in 1990, the Cincinnati Reds swept the Oakland A's to win their fifth Major League Baseball championship, 71 years after their first, and at least 31 years before their sixth, as they haven't won another title since. In Hollywood, for the third inexplicable week in a row, the number one film at the box office was Steven Seagal's Marked for Death, a spot that really should have gone to Tom Selleck's newly released Quigley Down Under, which I mentioned at the start of the episode. Matthew Quigley did was answer a help wanted ad. But a few surprises were waiting for Quigley down under. There was no mention of his friendly co-workers. Is everybody in this country as butt ugly as you three? Or that he'd get an assistant. Look out, Roy! Nothing about the transportation problem. Are we lost? Nope. I know exactly where we are. We're lost. The unusual local inhabitants. The extraordinary cuisine. I don't eat things that are still moving. You gonna shoot it first? Or the extra duties. You can take me if you want to, Roy. Kid, next time she talks like that, go all over the dress. Worst of all, his employer turned out to be somewhat moody. You could call it that. But Quigley's about to teach him a lesson in labor relations. That man knocks me out of my own house. Don't worry, Roy. Everything's going to turn out just fine. Sorry, Roy. My name ain't Roy. It's Matthew. Quigley. Matthew Quigley is really beginning to annoy me. Tom Selleck, Laura San Giacomo, Alan Rickman, from the director of the Emmy Award-winning Lonesome Dove, Quigley, Down Under. The only other major release in theaters this week in 1990 was George Romero's remake of his own 1968 horror classic, Night of the Living Dead. They came to pay their respects. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Why do you have to be so cruel? What? Show some respect. Now, they're running for their lives. A biologist in Stockton, California have released reports focusing on the phenomenon, specifically on that trance-like state. Every shelter is becoming a trap. Are you sure we're going to be all right? Cooper, you got to help me out! And every road out... Don't stop no matter what happens. It's just another dead end. They're coming right for us. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. 
This movie did not do well among critics. My favorite quote was from Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly, who wrote, In the history of bad ideas, George Romero's decision to produce a color remake of his disturbingly frenzied 1968 zombie fest, Night of the Living Dead, has to rank right up there with New Coke. That's good writing. The decision to remake the film, though, came from the fact that, due to all sorts of legal mishaps and copyright issues, Romero barely made any money from the original, and rumors were swirling that another production company was considering their own remake. So Romero rewrote the script and got the film made so as to try and protect what he'd created. And over the course of the three decades since the film flopped in theaters, horror fans have, for the most part, come to embrace and even revere the remake as a genre staple and a classic in its own right. The last little bit of pop culture news from this week in 1990 was that of actress Gina Davis, while nearing the height of her career, arguably, filing for divorce from her husband of two years and co-star in multiple films, Jeff Goldblum. Which is a bummer. I like them both. Anyway, that's all I've got for you this week, friends. But as always, I'll be back next week with more retro pop culture goodness. Stay safe out there and take care of each other. Wear your masks, wash your hands, and remember, you got one shot left in that shooter. Make the most of it. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. 